everybody to the start of our summertime series here at Believing. It's a brand new collection of sermons that we are calling Misfits. And I will make sense of this title here in a few moments for you and over the course of this summer. But I got to let you know, for those of you that may be new with us or maybe you're just tuning in, you're finding this on YouTube and you're like, what's, what's about to go on with this? Well, see, the majority of the preaching and teaching that we do here at Believing, we do in collections that we just call series. Many of them are two, three, four, sometimes as much as five weeks. But when we get to the summertime, Y'all know summer hits different and summer rolls different. That's why around here we say I love summer and everything that we do with I love summer is still going on. But our preaching and teaching and our services that we make available online through our podcast, what we like to do in the summer is, is take our time. Not necessarily in any one individual week, but over the course of the summer to, uh, to walk slowly, often through a chapter or through a book of the Bible, to really let it um, get down deep on the inside of us and to allow us to really understand completely uh, what is the intent of that writing and to get God's word in us in a different way. And so this summer, over the months of June and July, we are going to be exploring together the book of 1 Peter from the New Testament. And we're going to walk through this, not necessarily covering every little verse and every little thought that's there, because we would do that over the course of years it would take but really pertaining to this primary idea of being a misfit. Because that is the primary theme here in the book of 1 Peter. To learn how to live God-honoring lives in a hostile world by doing good. Now, some of you thought I was just talking about our world today. No, I'm talking about what 1 Peter is written about, who Peter is writing to. It's about learning how to live a God-honoring life life, which I believe if you're a follower of Jesus, that ought to be your aim and ambition, to live a life that honors God, but to recognize we are doing that in a hostile world. Can I give you a newsflash right off the rip today? You are not the first person. I am not the first person. We are not the first people to find ourselves in a world hostile to God, hostile to the ways and the claims of Jesus. Some of you feel so overwhelmed and feel like, oh my goodness, it's so, listen, you are not the first, we are not the first people. You're just becoming aware to it maybe for the first time. And the way Peter is going to instruct us as we walk through this over these next many weeks is to respond to this world that is not our home, this hostile environment by doing good to be misfits. And so today I want to do something that I will not do in future weeks, but I want to give you a little backstory on 1 Peter. I want to help you understand who he's writing to and what he's writing about as we we get ready to dive into it. And then here in a moment, we will dive into our word on today. But if you're ready for a brand new series, come on, if you're ready for all God has for you this summer, somebody in that chat right now, just type, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, this is the way the scripture reads. It says, Peter, he's calling himself by name. He's like, I don't want y'all to get confused over who wrote this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as strangers, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the way the letter that is 1 Peter starts, because that's what 1 Peter is. 1 Peter is a circulating letter that was written to persecuted Christians in various places. Many of the writings that we see and know as New Testament books were originally written as letters, some to specific people, some to specific churches in specific cities, some written and known off the rip that they were going to go around from place to place to place to place. What happened with all of them is they would be passed around. Peter, though, is, um, is very cognizant of his position in the church at that day, and he's very aware of what's going to happen with this letter. So Peter who at the time of this writing is literally one of the leading, if not the leading, apostolic voice in the new church, in the church of Jesus in this moment, is writing from Rome. He has left Jerusalem many years ago and, and is following the call of God unique to his life. And at this particular time, he finds himself in Rome, which oddly enough, he refers to as Babylon which is a play on an Old Testament idea to mean like he is in a place that does not honor God. He is in a place that does not worship the same way he worships, does not value the same things that he values, does not care about the same things that he values, but he's here to make a difference. And he's writing to people who are Jesus followers, but who are experiencing persecution in the various places that they find themselves. And they were experiencing this persecution not because of any other reality about them except their faith. Now, when I say persecution, I mean real persecution. There are a lot of people today that like to act like they persecuted and they ain't really being persecuted. Some of y'all think you're being persecuted because a store you like to shop at takes a stand that you don't like. Or some of you think you're being persecuted because a place that you like to eat all of a sudden does something that disagrees with your ideologies, maybe politically, or your ideologies uh, conceptually. And so I'm being persecuted. You should see what's going on. Where am I going to ever find chicken? How am I ever going to buy home decor again? Most people that say they persecuted, particularly in America in 2023, particularly for their faith, have no idea what persecution looks like. Peter is writing to people who are literally being killed because of the testimony of Jesus. People who are literally not being allowed to buy food at the store because they say they believe in Jesus. People who are literally not being hired for jobs they are qualified for, not because of their age, not because of their ethnicity, not because of anything else other than the profession of faith in Jesus. They're being persecuted, for real persecuted. And so he's writing to this group of people in various cities, in various churches throughout maybe what we would call modern day Turkey. And his call throughout this letter is simple but it's challenging. And it's not what you would expect if you were writing to people who are being persecuted. Oh, he certainly pats them on the back and encourages them and loves them and reminds them of their great hope. But his call for them is greater. His call to them is higher. You know what his call is? <laughs> his call throughout 1 Peter is this. 
Live like you're actually saved. He's like, I know you're being persecuted, but I want you to live like you're actually saved. He's like, I know that, that, that maybe you have a tough time even putting food on the table these days, but live like you're actually saved. I know there is difficulty everywhere you turn, but live like you're actually saved. In other words, be a misfit. Be a misfit. Act like you know who you are. My grandmama, when I was a little kid, um, used to tell me quite often when I would do something she didn't like me doing around the house, she'd say, you weren't raised in no barn. Maybe you heard a phrase similar to that. You weren't raised in no barn, so close that door. That's what my grandma would say. You weren't raised in no barn, so you better clean them dishes up. You weren't raised in no barn, and you put them, clean them dishes, wash them, put them back up in the cabinet. You weren't raised in no barn. You weren't raised in no barn, quit dribbling that basketball in this house. <laughs> you weren't raised in no barn. I think it's that same kind of sentiment that Peter is writing to these churches that he's ministering to in 1 Peter. These churches that are on the circular. He say, he say, I need you to recognize who you are. I need you to act like you actually saved. See, Peter is saying this because of two primary reasons that become very, very clear as we read 1 Peter. He, he's saying this, first of all, because there are people who he's writing to, and I know nobody's like this anymore, but Peter is writing to people who say they're saved, who ain't living saved. Oh, wait, <laughs> that's rampant in our day, too. <laughs> he's writing to people who say, I love Jesus, but they don't really love Jesus. They say Jesus has changed my life. The only problem is nobody can tell by the way that they live. He's writing to people like that. He's writing to people who say, they say they have a profession of faith on a verbal sense, but not on a practical sense. They say they know Jesus. They say they love Jesus. They say they're following him. The problem is we don't see it in how you live. Live like you actually say. This is Peter's idea. But the second reason Peter is writing this is because there are people who are living saved, but as they live saved, they're discovering that they don't fit in. They find themselves in very secular environments. They are finding themselves in very irreligious environments because where they were from, some of these people, because of where this message of Jesus originated, it was a very religious culture. And they were finding themselves in some cities and some places and some parts of the world that, that had no religious background, had no religious underpinning. And now here come along these people who are trying to live saved. But they discover as they live saved that they, um, they don't seem to fit in. They don't assimilate into culture. That the things that they value, um, their culture doesn't value. And their culture says these things are significant. These things matter. And they say, ah, not so much. That's why in the translation that we read of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he actually refers to this group of people collectively. He calls them strangers. Not strangers because he doesn't know them, but strangers because they are foreign in the place that they are. There are other translations that literally would use words like that. They would that they would take that word that is used as strangers here and translate it as foreigners. 
Because um, this is not their home. Can I tell you, person of faith, this is not your home either. I know you was born and raised here, but this is not your home. Some other translations call them refugees. Other translations, I probably like this word the best, call them sojourners. People just passing through. I'm just here for a while. But maybe the most accurate definition of the group of people that Peter is writing to would be the word that we are using as the title of our series. Peter is writing to a group of people who are misfits. They do not fit in to the place that they are because they're not supposed to fit in. They do not just seamlessly assimilate themselves into the pattern and culture of that day because the pattern and culture of that day does not seamlessly fit itself into the faith that bases them. Peter writes this letter specifically to misfits. Misfits who find themselves trying to follow Jesus in a place and time where it is not common to follow Jesus. He writes to people who are trying but don't fully grasp what's happening and why what's happening is happening. How they are to interpret what's going on and what they're supposed to do in some of these situations. He's writing to people that find themselves having to navigate conversations in their world and they, they, they don't know what to say because they're a person of faith. And they know that somehow their faith doesn't just give credence and pat on the back with the common phraseology of the day. And they don't know. He's writing to misfits. Can I tell you that's who this series is for? This series is for the misfits. This series is for those of you who recognize the more you follow Jesus, the less you sort of blend into this world, to the thinking pattern of this world, to the understandings of this world, to the ideologies of this world. This series is for misfits who, who get inundated every day with political extremism on the left and on the right. And you find yourself not fitting into either. That's because you're a misfit. And you don't succumb to the thinking patterns of this world. But you find yourself socially and politically and ideology because of your faith in Jesus somewhere where I just don't fit in. That's because you're a misfit. That's because you're a misfit. And that is who God has called you to be and how he's created you to be. See, too many people today, in the name of God, have tried to think, rationalize, and become like the world around them. Now, I'm not talking about becoming some of those people because some of you know me a little bit. If you've been around me for about five minutes, you will find out I'm not one of them people that's so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You ever been around somebody like that? Like, oh, they just talk about, is that sweet by and by? And they talk in some churchy vernacular. Ain't nobody understand what they're talking about, brethrens. Like, like no, 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 no. That, 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 that is not it. And that is such a, that is such a terrible representation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But you have to understand in the makeup of who you are, in the understanding of who you are, when you follow Jesus, when you become a Christian, you start not thinking like everybody that's around you that doesn't have faith in Jesus. See, the Apostle Paul in one of his writings would tell us, do not be conformed to the thinking pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then he says, 
Then you will know what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. May I contend that the reason some people of faith do not know what God wants them to do is because they have not allowed their mind to be transformed from the thinking patterns of this world to the thinking patterns of God. You ain't fully embraced the misfit that God created you to be. You still trying to fit in. You still trying to you still trying to have your little bit of Jesus and your little bit of all this stuff that ain't look nothing like Jesus. Baby, I came to raise up some misfits in this series. Some people who want nothing but God and his purposes and his plan for their life. Who understand I'm in a world that doesn't love God. But I want my world to love God like I love God. So I got to know who I am. I am a misfit. When that gets deep down on the inside of you, you recognize who you're called to be. Because see, you weren't called to be normal. You were called to be his. You weren't called to blend in to the world around you. You weren't called to handle things you go through the way everybody else handles things they go through. Can I tell you what our world is crying out for? A better way. Our world is becoming increasingly aware day after day, month after month, year after year, that the way we've been going about things is not working. I wonder if somebody somewhere had a hold of absolute truth. I wonder if somebody somewhere had a hold of, of a higher way of thinking, a higher way of living, a higher way of being, and they would be so committed to that, they say, I don't care what you call me, you won't be able to deny what's going on inside of me. See, you weren't called to be normal. You were called to be his. And so all summer long, here's my goal. I want to help you become normal, not fitting in. I want you to get used to not, uh, not everybody understanding why you do what you do, why you care like you care, why you value what you value. I want you to learn how to embrace living as the misunderstood minority that's on mission. I want you to be a misfit. I want you to learn how to become, how to love living as a misfit. Because being a misfit, <laughs> not everybody will understand it, but can I tell you the people around you will certainly take notice. See, misfits, uh, foundationally, they don't go through stuff in the same way everybody else goes through stuff. Because you do know that everybody goes through stuff. I know sometimes you think only you are the only one that has difficult days. You're the only one that has challenging seasons. You're the only one that has chronic illness. You're the only one that has financial issues. You're the only one that feels relationally isolated and alone. I know you feel that. You're the only one that has problems at work. I know you feel that sometimes, but can I tell you, everybody goes through stuff. The issue is not that we go through stuff. The issue is that most folk who say they're saved don't go through difficulty in this life like they're saved. That's a problem. And can I tell you, that problem is the first problem Peter addresses in his letter. After his introduction, Peter explains the hope that we have as followers of Jesus. He reminds us, reminds them of that. And he talks about how that changes the way that we see trouble in our life. 
And today, to all the misfits, what I want to do is I want to help recalibrate for a few moments. I want to maybe help reprogram over these next couple of moments the way you see trouble. Because when Peter begins his writing, he introduces himself and helps them to realize, listen, I understand that you're struggling. I understand that you're being persecuted. But baby, you were called to be different. You were called to be a misfit. And us as misfits, we walk through stuff differently. So let's pick up at verse 3 if we can. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read to verse 9. This is the way Peter writes. He says, praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being protected by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. There's a whole lot there I could really, 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 really walk through. But I told you we're going to do this series this summer, not for the next year. He says this next, which will be where we draw our attention on today. He says, you rejoice in this, though now for a short time you have had to struggle in various trials. So that the genuineness of your faith, more valuable than gold, which perishes, though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You love him, though you've not seen him. And though not seeing him now, you believe him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If you are new to faith, or maybe exploring faith, the idea that I'm about to explain may sound a little foreign to you. But if you become somebody who follows Jesus for a while, season after season, year after year, what you will find for you personally is that more than likely there will be some, some scriptures along the way that speak to you, that minister to you heavily and specifically in particular seasons. It will be impossible, you'll find, to hear a particular scripture said, read, for you to come across it on your own and have somebody preach or teach it to you, to come across it on Facebook or Instagram and not have it remind you of a season of life. For me, when I see verses 6 and 7 of 1 Peter chapter 1, those verses are, are like that to me. They remind me of um, a fantastic, but yet also very difficult season of my life. I would sum up my college years in the way that that famous classic writing, A Tale of Two Cities, begins. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. See, it was the best of times for me because it was then that I, in college, started, started dating uh, the girl who's now a woman, who is now my wife, who, as of this week, we just celebrated another anniversary. We've been married for 19 years, y'all. It's crazy what happens when you get married when you're 10, but, like, we've been married for 19 years, and, uh, and it was the best of times in that way. 
It was the best of times because it, it was in college that I made some friends that um, are some of the dearest friends I've ever had in life. S- some of who are still uh, very much a part of my life and people that I talk to and people that know what's going on in my people that I love, even though many, if not all of them, live in different parts of the country and we're rarely together. I made some friendships in that season that, um, that I'll, 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 I'll cherish for the rest of my life. I was in an environment there at seminary, but also in the church that I served at where I was flourishing. I was being given opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. The gifting and the talent that God had placed on the inside of me that sometimes I never saw, other people saw, and they were calling it out of me. And and, and it was a beautiful season of life where I was really discovering who God had created me to be. It was the best of times, but it was also the worst of times. See, it was when college began for me that... uh, Uh, the support that I presumed I had, I realized very, very quickly I did not have. That while most 17-year-olds who are living in other states, other cities, doing this, have the support of their family, my family uh, wanted nothing to do with me. And I was a 17-year-old living in a different state, trying to go to college completely on my own. I had friends who said that they were going to be with me, said they were going to be by my side, said they wanted to help, and all they did was turn their back on me. Financially, I, I, I struggled every day through college. I worked 50, 60, 70 hours a week while being a full-time college student, taking anywhere from 15 to 19 hours a semester, every semester. I I, I barely slept. I I lived stressed financially constantly because the entirety of my school bill was on me. Because if I was going to eat or not, it all rested on me. There was a lot of, while having really, really great friends, also a lot of times of feeling very, very alone. I can remember spending holidays in my dorm at the university, and I was literally the only person in the dorm. It it marks you in significant ways when you're in a Thanksgiving or it's Christmas morning, and you know every other person is with people that they love and love them, and you are in a dorm by yourself, on a campus by yourself. It's why I understand like, that moments that may have even just happened one time can, can, can scar a person completely. And it was in that season, the best of times and worst of times, where I lived just trying to survive, trying to survive in my mind, trying to survive practically, trying to survive, like, like literally living with a survival mentality year after year after year. I, I did survive by the grace of God and for the glory of God. I did survive. But it was these verses that the Holy Spirit kept bringing back to my heart. That you rejoice in this. 
Though now for a short time you are having to struggle through various trials. Can I tell you, I lived years and I felt like all that came my way were trials. Maybe some of you can resonate with that. I lived years and it felt like every door that opened led to a more difficult door behind that door. I, but I also held on to the truth of this. That said that these trials were not there to take me out, but there to develop my faith. And my faith is more valuable than gold. But yet gold, if it never goes to the fire, never gets purified. And my faith, if it never goes through the fire, it never gets purified. See, that season of my life built my faith in a significant way. I think back about it a lot because I got to be honest with you. I don't know if I would be doing what I'm doing right now, how we do what we do, where we do what we do. I don't think I would be doing it if it wasn't for God refining something in this season. Because I had a lot of experiences in those years when these verses were so near and dear to my heart that... Um, well, they were the type of experiences that for many people lead them to quitting faith, lead them to quitting God, lead them to walking out on trusting that God has purpose and plan for their life. But for whatever reason, God used that to purify, refine, and strengthen my faith. See, I learned something about suffering in that season that I would like to pass on to you. That suffering isn't meant to stop your faith, but to strengthen your faith. Maybe I'm talking to somebody today who feels like you're suffering. You're suffering because of the season of life you find yourself in. You're suffering financially. You're suffering in your health. You're suffering relationally. Maybe you understand the loneliness that I speak of. And you feel like the suffering that you are going through is some penance or punishment for bad decisions you have made. May I tell you today from the truth of God's word that maybe just maybe that suffering isn't meant to stop your faith. But it's trying to strengthen your faith. I can say this and I know it makes no sense to you. Because everyone in our day, everyone in our world, people of faith and people with no faith, they run from suffering. If something looks difficult, baby, we out. If something looks like it's going to be challenging, yeah, probably not. We run from pain. We give interpretation and thinking to bad stuff that if bad stuff happens in our life, it means something terrible because, you know, karma's a, yeah, that's what they say. And this, this is the uh, pervasive thinking in our day on suffering for people of faith and people without faith. They believe that suffering is somehow bad, that it means something bad about you, means something bad for you. Can I tell you, that's why we're misfits. That's why who God has created you to be, what God is calling you to be, what this summer I believe could be unlocked on the inside of you is the mentality of a misfit that understands suffering differently than people around them. People who call themselves Christians and people who are not. People who would try to give understanding to what you are going through and people who, who, who would tell you to run from God, that if God loved you, you wouldn't have to go through this. You see, I learned a long time ago that a faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. And if my faith is so weak and so meek that it can't walk through a difficult season, it can't embrace the, the heat of a hot moment. See, we are so quick to rule out God 
to realize God's working. If what we're going through is difficult, if what we're going through doesn't go perfectly. We literally use the filter of ease and goodness to define whether or not something is God or not. I was talking to somebody this week. I don't remember who they were. If, if it was you and you're watching, I didn't remember that it was you. All right? I couldn't put a name on this. But I remember talking to somebody this week who was explaining something going on in their life that was really good. And they made this statement. They say, well, and we just know this is what God wants us to do. And I was just listening to them. And so I just asked a very simple question. I said, how do you know that's what God wanted you to do? And they said, oh, well, you know, it was just God. Everything lined up perfectly. Everything was so easy. I mean, we couldn't have asked for anything better in this particular situation. And I was sitting there just thinking, wow. Wow. I mean, sure, every good and perfect gift comes from God. I believe that. But I also know that it rains on the just and the unjust alike. In other words, blessing and good things come to people that don't follow God and people who follow God alike. But what if God might actually want you to walk through difficulty to refine your faith? What if there's some strengthening, some, some firming, some calcifying, some, some reinforcing of your faith that God wants to do. But the only way he can do that is to, um, is to walk with you through challenging trials. See, we have such a terrible theological understanding, practical perspective when it concerns struggle and suffering that we don't even know what to do with struggle and suffering when it knocks at our door. Today from 1 Peter chapter 1, particularly verses 6, 7, and 8, I just want to draw two hopes for you. Because I know that there are some of you today that you feel like you're in the middle of it. Man, life is, is very, very challenging. It's, it's difficult. And there's something within you that tells you that the reason it's difficult is because you're not doing what God wants you to do. Or the reason it's so hard for you is because God doesn't love you and his hand isn't on your life and he doesn't care about you. Can I tell you that's a lie from the enemy? Because Peter, the loudest voice in the church at that time, Peter, the most significant voice in the church at that time, in his first documented circulating letter that becomes a part of the New Testament scriptures, chooses to take upon his first subject matter when he's talking to misfits, when he's talking to people that do not fit in to the thinking patterns of this world, who do not fit in to the normal understandings, talks about how you walk through difficulty. It says you got to see what God's doing there. Can I tell you something today, friend? Your present trial if you go through it right, will bring God glory in the life you have. Your present trial, if you go through it right, will bring God glory in the life that you have. 
The truth is most Christians are just as hopeless, angry, and toxic as folk without Jesus. We complain and quit on God just as fast. But if you'll learn how to go through whatever you go through with hope in God, the people around you may not understand how you smile through it. They may not understand how you have the tenacity and the fortitude to keep going on, even though it's been very, very difficult for a very, very long time. But they won't be able to deny it. A few weeks ago, the Capital C Church lost one of the greatest pastors from the last half century. A gentleman by the name of Tim Keller. Tim Keller passed away a couple of weeks ago now after a multi-year battle with cancer. But Tim Keller pastored in New York City for decades. And while Tim Keller is someone I have read much of his work, he is someone I respect on such a high, high level, even though like a lot of the circles that I would have run in from a church perspective and even theologically, he wasn't necessarily in those circles. But Tim Keller pastored in a very high profile way without a scandal. And there are too many scandals ridden throughout the church, capital C church today, North American church in particular. He pastored in a very high profile public way uh, and led his church well in a very difficult environment, in a very hostile toward God environment. See, he was in New York City, not like I'm in New York City, but really I'm like an hour and a half outside of New York City. I just say New York City because it sounds cooler. Like how people say they're from Memphis when they're not in Memphis, but really they be living in like Millington. Maybe if you live in Millington, that's cool, but you do not live in Memphis, all right? Like, like, no, Tim Keller was in New York City with church locations throughout the city and was reaching a group of people that nobody really at the time when he started was really focused on trying to reach. He was brilliant. And in his brilliance would find himself in debates with people who did not believe like he believed, did not think, did not hold the same worldview values that he would hold. And he would converse with them. And this would cause many of them to get in their feelings. And if you were to scroll back through years of Tim Keller tweeting or, or look at articles written about Tim Keller, there would be a lot of pushback to things that he said because the way that he thought was not the way the world thought. But when Tim Keller passed away, just about every major news outlet in the country wrote extended op-ed pieces on Tim Keller, on his life, on his impact, on his brilliance. And while many of these had never agreed with him from an ideological perspective, they, uh, at least all the ones I wrote, or read, <laughs> wrote glowingly about him. The New York Times, the New York Post, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, glowingly about a pastor. Why? Every one of them, at least the ones that I read personally, and I read many, any that I could 
read without having to get a subscription of the thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, they all talked about how he went through, what he went through. And that what they deduced at the end of his life was that what his life had always been about was actually true. Because when difficulty faced him, he did not change. When cancer is literally eating, uh, eating his physical body from the inside out, taking away his strength, taking away his ability to press on, he did not change. But his faith in God stayed strong. In fact, one of his last things he said to his family is he said, I'm so tired and I'm ready to go meet Jesus. Your present trial, if you go through it right, will bring God glory in the life you have. See, because friend, trials aren't meant to punish you. They're meant to purify you. That's the reason God will allow trials to be happening in our lives. They're not meant to punish you. They are not meant to, to say, you did wrong, you did bad, you were a bad person. No, 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 no. They are meant to purify you. But as long as you see your trial as punishment, it will never be able to purify you. As long as you see it as punishment, whatever it is, as long as you see it as some stamp from God that you've done wrong, it will never be able to purify you like God wants. So what do you call punishment that God wants to use to purify you? What is it in your life right now? What is it that you've been through that you call punishment, but God says, I'm trying to use that to purify you? Is it your childhood? Because I know you grew up in a difficult home. I know your home life is challenging. I know that you don't even have a home life from your childhood that you can go back to. I understand. But some of you view that as a punishment from God on you. Rather than maybe realizing maybe there's something in you that God wants to change, that he wants to purify in you, and he can use that if you'll let him. For some of you, it's a betrayal that happened, or still happens. And the way you see that betrayal will determine whether or not it is something that God can use to purify you, or you're going to feel like it's punishment your whole life. For some of you, it's the financial struggles that you walk through. You've, you, you've, you've always had more month than money. And for whatever reason, you feel like this is God's like, way of showing you how wrong you are. This is God's way of punishing you. You don't see it right. And maybe God's trying to get you to trust him more than you'll ever trust a dollar bill. But you just won't see it that way. Is it loneliness? Maybe some of you feel so alone in this world. And you feel like it's punishment. But what if God wants to use a season that, yes, is lonely to purify you? Is it a bad medical report? You don't know what to do with all this? Trials aren't meant to punish you. They are meant to purify you. And friend, I know that you will never have the testimony you want, the testimony that God wants you to have, without a test. 
You don't get there without a test. See, your present trial, if you go through it right, will bring God glory in the life that you have. God actually can use, wants to use, and will use how you walk through difficulty to be to be something the people around you who don't believe like you believe can't deny how you walk through pain, how you walk through difficulty, how you walk through struggle, how you walk through those trials. And it can bring him glory because they see his presence in you and how you walk through that trial in the life that you have. But there's a second reality, and it's this, that your present trial, if you go through it right, will bring God glory in the life to come. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. I think we get so much of the life to come wrong because we don't see this life like misfits. See, most of us think that the good stuff that we do, whatever we might call good, is that stuff that's going to be worshipped to God in the life to come. That on that day that we stand before God, and we are able to lay at his feet all the, all the worship that we can, all the good stuff that we've got. Some of us think that what we're going to be able to lay is, is, the, is the money that we gave uh, to his mission, to his church. It's going to be the serving that we did. God, I gave this year, I gave this season of my life. It's going to be the, the people that we helped, the people that we loved. And yes, that's part of it. But Jesus and Peter, right here, taught that how we go through difficulty in this life brings praise to God in the life to come. What did we read? He says that you're going to go through trials for a little while now, and your faith is going to be purified. And he literally says, this may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is revealed. When every eye sees him on that day, can I tell you how you walk through your difficulty has the opportunity to bring him praise on that day. To say, do you see how she fought cancer for a decade? But you would have never known because it did not destroy her. It destroyed her liver. It destroyed her, it, it destroyed her bone marrow. It took her out. But can I tell you, at the end of the day, you never would have known that God was any different to her because God still sat on the throne of her life. It'll bring him praise because of how you walk through difficulty. Did you know that he grew up in a broken home? Do you know that he used to cry himself to sleep at night because he wanted nothing more than the affirmation of his father or mother? But baby, he served God and that's going to bring God praise. Do you know that she struggled financially her whole life, but she faithfully put God first? She faithfully put his mission as a bigger priority than any other priority in life. And let's give God praise for that. That's what the text says. That the way you go through trials, if you go through them right, will bring God glory in the life to come. But how you see struggle determines how you steward your struggle. How you see your struggle, it's all a perspective. Do you see it as punishment or do you see it as the potential to strengthen your faith? How you see your struggle determines how you steward your struggle. 
See, we often think of stewardship as only applied to good things. I've got to steward my talent. I've got to steward my time. I've got to steward my influence. I've got to steward my resources. I've got to steward these things that I have. Sure, we're supposed to steward the opportunities God gives us, steward the relationships we have. Yes. But how are you stewarding your struggle? Because we all have a struggle. I have struggle right now. How are you stewarding your struggle? How are you managing before God the struggle that you have right now? Are you stewarding it well? Or is it your excuse for not stewarding? I'm crazy busy, but I'm still serving. Stewarding it well. I'm I'm hurting physically, but I'm still praising God. Can I tell you, it it builds my faith when I see people come to the house of God to worship or come serve, and you know their body's hurting. You know that they're in pain, but they say, ain't ain't nothing going to stop me. Ain't nothing going to limit me from giving praise and honor to our God. That's a testimony. That's a testimony in this life and in the life to come. Money's tight, but I'm still giving. How you steward your struggle. I got stabbed in the back, but I'm still loving people. See, some people have allowed one betrayal, one one taking advantage of them. Once somebody stabbed you in the back, and you never would have thought they'd be the type of person that would walk up behind you and get you like that, but they did. To cut them off from relationship for the rest of their life. While other people realize God loved the world so much that he gave. He loved the people of the world so much. And so even if they hurt me, the world hurt him. So I'm gonna keep loving people. Even though I've been taken advantage of, I'm gonna keep loving people. Even though sometimes I have to do it while hurting, I'm gonna keep loving people. How you steward your struggle. I'm worried about tomorrow, but I'm still worshiping today. See, what misfits do is they don't squander their struggle. They steward their struggle. They don't allow their their struggle to be something that that slips through their hands and they just try to survive and get through. No, no, no. They steward it well. So stop wasting a good struggle that God can use. Stop dismissing those undeveloped testimonies. But how do you do it? How do you go through what you go through and bring God glory and steward it well? Well, Peter tells us, and I close with this. You believe him. He said, you face these trials of many kind. They're not meant to take you out. They're meant to purify your faith like the fire purifies gold. The fire that you walk through is to purify your faith. And it brings praise, glory, and honor to Jesus on the day he's revealed. He said, you love him, even though you haven't seen him. Because you believe him. You believe him. How do you go through trials in this life? How do you steward the struggle that you have? Well, you believe him. See, there are a lot of people that believe what Jesus says about eternity that do not believe what Jesus says about today. They believe that Jesus will will save them and take them to heaven and leave them forever in the presence of Almighty God. But they do not believe that Jesus is with them here and now. 
but misfits do. Misfits believe what Jesus said about tomorrow and today, about eternity and my present. So today, friend, can I invite you to believe, to believe him enough to trust what he says? That if he says this trial that you're going through, he can use, then he can use it. To trust him enough that if he says that he can use the difficulty in your life to bring honor and praise to him. If you'll just hang on, then believe him enough to trust what he says. If he says that he's going to provide for you, believe him enough to trust what he says. If he says that he's going to turn your weeping into dancing, your mourning into joy, then believe him enough to trust what he says. Believe him enough to see what he sees. That he doesn't see your suffering the way you see your suffering. He sees it as something that has the potential to bring God praise, to bring God honor in your life and in the life to come. See it the way he sees it. That this trial that you're going through, this trial that you carry, this pain that you're having to navigate, this struggle that you have to steward is not punishment on you. It is not condemnation on you. It's not because you were a bad person. It's because there's something in you that is going to be purified. Your faith is going to be strengthened if you would trust what he says through it. But you got to see what he sees in it. you got to believe him enough to do what he wants. To worship, even when you're worried. To pray, even though you want to take control of those things yourself. To give, even though you feel like things are too tight for you. To forgive, even though you think they may do what they did to you before again. I know it sounds crazy. I know ain't nobody lived like that. This friend, this is the way of the misfits. Misfits. People who live in a world that don't know God. Misfits. People who are surrounded and inundated every day with ideas that conflict and contradict the ways and the purposes of God. Misfits. They don't trust in what they see. They trust in what he said. Misfits. And I want to pray for you today, particularly for those of you who are going through. And I'm going to pray for strength today because some of you need strength. Some of you may even right now, if you're watching at church online, need to reach out to some of our hosts right now and say, would you pray for me? Because I'm going through it and I need strength. I need to start seeing my struggle the way God sees my struggle. I need to start trusting him. I need to start following him. I need to believe that this trial is actually trying to develop something in me that God can use. That it's trying to purify and strengthen my faith. And I don't know how and I don't know why, but I'm going to trust what God said. Because I'm a misfit. Father, I love you and I thank you today. I pray for your people listening on the podcast, watching at church online, watching this on YouTube, whenever they may be watching. And they're hurting. They're struggling. Father, I pray you give them the strength right now that they need to walk through this struggle with grace, tenacity, to not throw in the towel because it's difficult, but to continue trusting you in this season and in every season. 
Father, I pray you would help them to see their faith getting stronger. Even bring to their, their, their perspective and to bring to their understanding right now how what they're going through right now may have taken them out a year ago, but look at who they are. Six months ago, if they had to face what they're facing now, they would have thrown in the towel, but their faith has gotten stronger. Father, I pray that they would not determine and define trials as being some testament of your abandonment on them, but they would recognize that these trials are something you can use and will use to purify, to strengthen their faith. Father, I pray you do it for the honor of your great name and your great name alone. We pray all this, Jesus, in your precious name and everybody said, amen.